Uh, many of you have read a book by a psychiatrist, M. Scott Peck, called The Road Less Traveled. Very famous bestseller. Maybe you've read it. Um, I've read it. And um, it was very popular, but uh, later in his life, uh, Peck uh, converted to Christianity. And uh, still means he was you know, learning about that, and he was practicing uh, psychiatry at the same time. So one of his lesser known but very powerful books is called The People of the Lie. And it's about uh, the real presence of evil in the world, people of uh, the lie. And in that book, he has one. Of, this is one of the things he says. Uh, one of the characteristics of evil is its desire to confuse. Uh, one of the characteristics of evil is its desire to confuse. And as I came upon that, I was... Uh, I recall Jesus' words, and, and actually in John 8, verse 44, a passage that we've already looked at as we go through the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus gives Satan a title, Father of Lies. Father of Lies. One of the characteristics of evil is its desire to confuse, and we just want to name it, and I think this sets the context for this message, is that in many ways we do live in confusing times. Somebody, what, what's directions up, what do we do, what's right and, and, and wrong. And there's a couple different things. I'll highlight three kind of forms of confusion. One is quite simply a choice confusion. And part of the reason for that is because, you know, we, there's never been a time in human history where we have as many choices on a daily basis as we do now. How to live our lives, what products to buy and to use, uh, how we are going to structure our time. And don't get me wrong, in many ways, a lot of that stuff is good. We, we, there's so many you know, positives to choice and different things about how we live and choose, etc. Um, but we think it always means that we always make better decisions because we always have these great choices. It's always going to improve our lives. Not necessarily the case. There's actually an increasing body of research shows that uh, many of us have decision fatigue. And we become tired in our minds. And these are small decisions, whether it's like what kind of mustard to buy. There used to be two kinds in the store. Now there's 15. Like whether it's that whether it's how to live, whether it's kind of big decisions about how we use our time and the priorities we set, all these sorts of things. There's a Princeton philosopher named Walter Kaufman, and he has coined a phrase, decidophobia. Decidophobia. I just find that's really interesting. Fear of making a decision. Why? Because there's so many choices and we're aware of making so many different choices. We're afraid of making the wrong choices. And then we go online and see the choices other people are making and then we have regret about the choices we made. Choice confusion. Second, there's moral confusion. And I just want to say that, uh, you know, I think Canada is a great country. Canada is a great country, and uh, I'm glad to be here. I, I, I don't want to live in another country. But, um, you know, there, let me just give one example. One, one example might be uh, the rise of, of something that's, uh, you know, assisted suicide or euthanasia. And as that has come up, you know, the taking of life, you know, it's been framed in very positive ways, et cetera. It's interesting because the original legislation, you know, things are evolving. The, the, the initial safeguards are being taken down. It's easier to get quicker, faster for more people. Our specific uh, legislation in Canada, as pointed out by Andre Schutten, a constitutional lawyer, it drew the ire of disability rights groups. Repeated criticism from the United Nations, this is our Canadian legislation, repeated criticism from the United Nations, public condemnation from hundreds of physicians, from First Nations groups, academics and religious leaders. In a rare move, both the political left and the right both opposed it, but it's law. And I just simply say this, I think it's, it's a challenge for a lot of people who have grown up decades and decades in this country and have felt that there's been kind of a, a positive moral compass 
with what the government does. Sometimes, not always. Third, there is information confusion. And again, this is a part of the data era in which we live. And so it's, it's, it's becoming to know who, who to trust. How do we get information? Where does it come from? How do we experience this? We turn on the news and we watch this and then, then we go online and we find, wait a second, that's the same event. And it seems to be a different story when you talk to our friends and they've got a different take because they've heard something else. It's, it's, it's very strange, right? How, how, do, how do we know what to trust? Uh, Hector Lord tells a story about uh, driving up. Uh, this person drove up to um, this road blockade, stopped, obviously it was a blockade, and there's a police officer there. Uh, asked them to roll down the window, asked them to get out of the car. And so they got out of the car. Someone else got in and stole the vehicle. Like, what's going on? Well, they found out it was actually a highly orchestrated uh, crime. There was actually no blockade. And the person was dressed up as a police officer, but they weren't actually a police officer. And this really shook this person to the core because they thought, oh my goodness, that was really serious. And like, you know, how, how do I know who to trust? Almost a sense of betrayal. And I think as we get, get information, I think more and more people are feeling this. How, how, do I, how do I know who to trust? Where do I get information to make decisions? Uh, it's interesting. Uh, Einstein uh, said a while ago, we live in a time of perfect means and confused goals. Perfect means and confused goals. So there's been, never been a time in history where we've had so many choices, products to use, this and that to do, how we structure our time. Perfect means but confused goals, because if our goals are confused, if we're, if we're confused about the fundamental, ultimate priorities of life, all the stuff we have and all the choices we can make and the resources aren't going to help us. Enter Jesus. Into a confusing world, he comes with a word of clarity and compassion. And as we go through the Gospel of John, today's next section of text is this. And so we're going to focus on it. And this is our main verse. He comes through and he says these words from John 14, 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, in a world of confusion, he comes with this word of clarity and it is a word of compassion. At the same time, this has been a passage which has been very controversial. I just want to name that. We're going to, we're going to spend some time talking about that. And so what I say is, is some, people will, some people will struggle with this. This is something they've wrestled with or they haven't maybe thought about uh, before. Maybe they've dismissed it. Maybe they've accepted it. But we're going to take this seriously, this idea. Because as things change uh, in the world globally, we've talked about that, some of the kind of the seismic shifts that are going on, also culturally, kind of a new kind of right and wrong is emerging. And... Um, you know, if you're, if you're in a group of people and you say something that is deemed to be exclusive, you're instantly the bad guy, guilty and too proven innocent, or bad girl. If, you, if you're in a group of people and you say something that's considered to be judgmental, even if you're not being, you're instantly the bad guy. And so, doesn't this statement from Jesus sound like both? At least the second part. And so what we're going to do is, we're gonna, what does he mean? What is the context? We're going to say, okay... If Jesus is loving, if God is love, how is this good, compassionate news for us? Because it is in confusing times. So we're going to unpack this, and if you've got your Bible, I encourage you to open it up to John chapter 14. And we will have on the... I'm not sure I'm going to continue keep having the words up here, by the way, so I do encourage you to bring your Bibles. Um, and so 
You can follow along. I'm reading from the ESV translation, and this is just part of our walk through the Gospel of John. He's one of the apostles. He's walked with Jesus. He's talked with Jesus. He's one of the intimates. And so this is our next section of, of text. A bit of context. So uh, remember the, the previous passages, we've had the powerful and beautiful story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Uh, so amazing. Here the Lord of the universe comes to us, walks among us. He's washing the feet, including the feet of Judas who he knows will betray him. Judas, Judas has since left the scene. Jesus says, go what you're about to do and do quickly. And so he leaves. Uh, and then Jesus gives them the new commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you, so are you to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, what, if you have love for one another. And he says that not in a vacuum, but in the fact that he has just washed their feet. It's an act of humble um, servanthood. Peter has said that he will, he will stand by Jesus. He will lay down his life for Jesus. Uh, and Jesus says something that really would have been hard for Peter to hear. And he says, uh, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. It would have been very difficult for Peter to hear. And as we know, it will come true. And so there's tension in the air. There's uncertainty in the air. Not only generally, but remember, Jesus is actually standing on the verge of his own torture, his own crucifixion, um, and his own uh, betrayal and death. And so 14, beginning of verse 1, let not your, this is Jesus talking, let not your hearts be troubled. And this, is a, this, is, this, is a, this is a deep trouble. This is the same word that used when Jesus was upset and shaken to the core when people were mourning outside of Lazarus' tomb. Almost, one dictionary said, almost shaking. Like, this is, a, this is how troubled. Let your hearts not be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And so Jesus, this is a bit of a mysterious statement. I'm going to my Father's house. Now, usually when he talks about his Father's house, he's actually talking about the temple in Jerusalem, so back in chapter 2. But here, based on the context, really, we, he's talking about heaven. So he's going to go because he's facing his imminent death, which he has been warning them about. And he's going to go prepare a place for them. And so they might not totally have gripped what was going on right here, but I imagine that they're going to live through the horrors of these days. They're going to live through horrors of the next couple decades. I bet that in retrospect, they were going to look back on this passage and get a lot of comfort out this, right? This is one of the ones that's read at funerals in my father's house. The old King James Version in my father's house are many mansions. It really means dwelling place. So imagine going to see a long-lost friend. And uh, you go there, and they're expecting you, and they're waiting for you. And, um, you know, the, the, you're welcome with open arms. The, be, the, the guest room is set up. The bed's made. The fresh towels are out. The music that you like is playing candles. They've got your favorite snacks. You'd feel anticipated and special and loved because you are. Imagine Jesus going to prepare a place for them ahead of time. Okay, continuing with verse 4. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, now it's nice to hear from Thomas because it doesn't feature a lot in the other uh, Gospels, but he comes up uh, more in, in John, so it's nice to hear from him. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? So he's like, oh, well, we're kind of in the dark. We don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> How can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. Now, a couple of things about this uh, passage, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Now, one of the things that happens when a passage gets translated from these early manuscripts, which are in Greek, to English, which this is, 
is sometimes things can get lost in translation. And as we've been talking about, as you go through the Gospel of John, there's a series of I am statements. So Jesus will say specific things about his identity and his mission, starting with the phrase I am. And it's a distinct Greek phrase, ego eimi. So I am the bread of life, ego eimi, the bread of life. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the true vine. All, all these I am, they all start in the same way, that same construction, right? And just as a reminder, we've talked about this, but what's the significance? Well, back in the burning bush in Exodus uh, um, chapter 4, verse, uh, sorry, 3, verse 14, uh, Moses asked God to, like, if I'm going to go, you know, rescue the Hebrews from slavery, how are they going to believe me? Like, who's, who shall I say sent me? And God reveals his name, I am who I am. And for short, tell them, I am has sent me to you. And in the Greek scriptures of the Old Testament, that's ego eimi. And everyone knew it. So when Jesus says, I am this, I am that, he's consciously taking upon himself the name of God. And people would have known what he was doing. So not only does Jesus do things that only the God of Israel can do, but he says things that only the God of Israel says. So he's consciously identifying with the things, with the identity of God. And so, he's, so this sets that up. Ego eimi, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let's look at them one by one, the way. Now this sounds familiar to, um, to us. Uh, John 10, Jesus said he was the gate. Similar idea, gate for the sheep. He is the way. He is the way to something, okay? Um, but we're also, we're also reminded of Matthew uh, chapter 7. So Sermon on the Mount and uh, so many great teachings, ethical teachings of Jesus. High bar is set. Uh, he, here's what he says. He says, enter by the narrow gate. The narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy. That leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. This is Jesus. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And so what we find, Jesus, when he says he is the way, uh, the idea is that he is not only the door, the gate to our Heavenly Father, but he's also the pathway. So he calls us to a certain ethical way to live while on earth as we head to that, that gate. And actually, just it's an interesting side note. Um, uh, the early Christians were called the people of the way or the followers of the way, before that name Christian became uh, so synonymous. Disciple, follower, absolutely, then the people of the way. A couple of the places where this happens in Acts 19, uh, describing the ride in Ephesus, there was a disturbance concerning the way, capital W, way. In Acts 22, Paul is describing how he lived before his conversion. He said, I persecuted the way. Um, so, you know, they, and I think passages like this in John 14, 6 really kind of serve as a foundation and as a precursor later on to the followers be calling people of the way. Um, I, I just have to slide this in here. One of the shows that I've started to watch is The Mandalorian. And uh, The Mandalorian is part of the Star Wars franchise. And uh, Mandalorians, they are uh, these bounty hunters with uh, these helmets that they, they don't take off. And they've got this incredible armor. Um, but they live by this certain kind of code. Uh, they're supposed to be people of honor, these troops of honor, and they look after uh, certain people and they keep their word, et cetera, et cetera. And sometimes they'll be together as a group if there's, you know, a couple Mandalorians together and someone will say, this is the way. And the rest of them say, this is the way. Because this way of living, this ethical code governs all of them. And that's the thing to which they pledge allegiance. Now, they're also bounty hunters, so they slaughter a lot of people. So let's just put that in a separate category. Um, 
So I'm not holding up the Mandalorian as our article, but I, I just say this because of the idea of the way, and I really think those early Christians, because of passages like this, they knew that Jesus was the gate, the way to our Heavenly Father, but he was also the pathway leading up to that gate. Next he says he is the truth. Now it's interesting to say this because uh, we live in a time where a lot of people say truth is relative. People say that truth is relative, right? But that's actually a statement which is incoherent logically. So if you say truth, if, tr if truth is relative, aren't you saying that that statement, truth is relative, is true? So if you think that the phrase, truth is relative, is true, you're actually defeating your own logic because, you know, it, it totally doesn't make sense. And so the idea with truth is it's a concept which has within it objectivity. So it is true that 2 plus 2 equals 4. It is true plus that 2 plus 2 equals 4 in Canada and in Zimbabwe and in New Zealand right? And, and in Germany. So that's the idea. So truth has this internal logic which always works. So we just need to say that about Jesus. He is um, the truth. Um, Os Guinness has a, has a quote about this. I want to share it with you. He says this, uh, the right to believe anything is freedom of conscience, but the idea that anything anyone believes is right is just plain nonsense. Now, he's not being arrogant. Um, he's not being harsh with that, and it could sound like that at first blast. What he's trying to do is expose the inner fallacy. The, uh, it just doesn't m make sense. Right to believe that anything is freedom of conscience, right? You can have, you can, but the, the, the idea that believing anything anyone believes is right is just plain nonsense. Two plus two is four, but it's not also five, right? But if someone believes that, they can believe that, but it's not true, right? So I think that's a helpful thing to reflect upon. And of course, this is just a gift. And we think that, you know, this is kind of a hard thing. People talk about truth today. Oh, this is hard. This is unbending. No, it's actually an act of love towards us. Let's say that reality is a certain way. Let's say that God determines reality. And we are in that reality, in that world. And his scripture communicates this truth and reality to us. And God just doesn't fling us into the world. Have at it. Good luck. He gives truth and wisdom, his illuminating wisdom, for us because he loves us, because he cares for us. He comes to us personally in the person of Jesus, the word made flesh, walks among us, shows us his way, give us teachings which have been incredibly preserved for our benefit because he loves us. And third, you are the life. Now, uh, one of the things that uh, Jesus is the life. Not only does he have life in him, chapter one, he is life and he teaches life. Now, one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago was abundant life, John 10, 10. Jesus came. It's one of the places where he says, one of the purposes for which he came to the world. He says, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. Right? And so we did that word study of all the uses of the word life, Zoe, in the Gospel of John. And we thought, okay, maybe there's a cumulative weight to what abundant life means that Jesus offers. And the place where we landed really is, is having peace with God and purpose for God. This is the life Jesus offers. So peace with God in a world of such worry and confusion, but also purpose for God in which one of the increasing sources of sadness and distress in our world is not knowing if you have a purpose or if your life makes a difference or if there's any meaning to anything. Jesus gives peace and purpose. Now, I'll notice also what it says. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Not our way, our truth, our life, the, the, the. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that phrase we're specifically going to return to a little bit right at the end. Let's keep going through the text. 
Verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, again, it's nice to hear from another one of the apostles, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Numbskull. <laughs> sorry, that's, that's not in there. That's, sorry, Lord. Um, it's not in there, but I, I, read, I read a tone into there. I've, he's repeatedly said this over and over again. He's doing all these things. He's turning water into wine. He's feeding the thousands. He's, he's saying these things. I and the Father in one, John 10, verse 30. He's done, doing all these things, right? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. And so he's saying, if you don't believe me, like, look at all the works, look at all the things that have happened. Those should bear witness. Those should give weight to those other things. And so we end our close look at the text there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Having gone through that, we're going to return to that verse 6 as we talked about, um, and I want to give us several of what I think are essential points uh, to think about. Um, and again, I just acknowledge that what I'm about to say might raise some more questions, and I think you should do some digging. Um, some, some of the things I'm about to say might be confirmation and helpful. Um, but let's, uh, let's explore this, because take this idea seriously, because I think in today's context, especially in Canada, where we're you know, we, you know, we want to be kind. We, we don't want to say anything that might sound weird or strange to anybody. You know, we, we can really, you know, we really got to watch ourselves. And so we're going to treat things one at a time. Here's the first uh, point. It's that we want to know what is actually true, not just what we want to be true. And I think that's important. Uh, Jesus comes, what, and he comes, chapter 1, verse 14, full of grace and truth. So if we are to be people of grace and truth, then we should be concerned with grace, which is grace is generosity we don't deserve. In Christ, God gives it to us, and we want to be people of generosity. Uh, we also want to be people of truth. So how, how has God structured reality in this world in which we live, and how can we find out what that is so that we might live out our calling and be people of faith? Imagine that you, know, you have an illness, and there's a cure for that illness, and it's a little blue pill. There's another blue pill over here that looks like a Tic Tac. They both look the same. Well, one actually can cure you and one can't. So grabbing them both, just kind of throwing them up there and taking one, well, they're both the same. Well, that's not true. One is actually different chemically than the other pill. Imagine uh, my child out playing on the train tracks. And uh, they're out there and a train's coming. And oh my goodness, something's got to change. Is it true that that train is coming? So if I just wish it away, I hope that train isn't there. That train, that train's so mean. Me wishing that isn't going to make the train go away. If it's true that the train is coming, I had better do something about it, get my kids off the track, or they better get it off themselves, right? So we want to know what is actually true, not what just what we want to be true. So I think as people of faith, we, should, we are interested in truth, right? Part of the reason why the, you know, in, in the academy, in the sciences, why so many of those foundational people have been Christians over the years is because they want to know more about God's universe. They want to know more about natural law, how things function. And this applies in all areas of our lives. Second, Jesus' words are consistent with other statements in the New Testament. Remember uh, when I was much younger hearing a minister talk to me about this verse, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he said, when I, when I read that at funerals, I just, I just take out the part that says no one comes to the Father except through me. That was just a first century squabble between Jews, um, but it's not universally true. He was misleading people. Not only in this, but in other ways as well. Mahatma Gandhi has said, my position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. Oprah Winfrey, one of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe that there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. I just want to highlight a few of the things that the scriptures teach. First, this is Jesus sending out his apostles to a mission. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, and the word there is for all people, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. One of the great passages of Scripture we love, John 3.16. Well, a couple of verses later, this is what we find. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the, the only Son of God. Peter's great speech in the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation. He's talking to people from all over the place, diverse backgrounds. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men or mankind by which we must be saved. This is consistent. People can look at the passage here, there, cherry pick this. This isn't just once or twice. This is a theme. Winston Churchill, who we all know, uh, once proclaimed, men stumble over truth from time to time, but most pick themselves up and hurry off as if nothing has happened. May that not be so of us. Next, I want to discuss what it means to be honest and truly respectful of other faiths, because I think that what happens is we can actually fall victim to say that uh, all faiths are basically the same, um, the same or they're basically the same, and we think we're being respectful, but I actually think that's a statement of disrespect to the people who practice that. And I just want to say it because I think, you know, especially as Canadians, we want to be nice, we want to say things, everyone, everyone, but... It's actually disrespectful when those faiths believe different things, genuinely held beliefs that are different. So Tim Keller, uh, he's the, he, he, he served, he's not a pastor now because he's dealing with pancreatic cancer, but uh, he writes for books and everything else. Anyway, he was asked to be a Christian a panelist, a kind of a Christian rep on a very diverse panel. This is New York, very diverse uh, he was the Christian rep, and he was with a Muslim imam and a Jewish rabbi. This is the statement that they agreed upon. If Christians are right about Jesus being God, the Muslims and Jews fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. But if Muslims and Jews are right that Jesus is not God, but rather a teacher or a prophet, then Christians fail in a, seri Christians fail in a serious way to love God as God really is. So they could agree to the statement. And a lot of people in the audience felt really uncomfortable about that. But the reality is, is if, is if I, think about it, if, and I find sometimes people say this either if they're not actually practicing faith and they haven't sort of got into it very much, but if I say to uh, a Muslim, hey, you basically believe the same as this Jewish person over here, that's, that's not very respectful to the Muslim because they hold different things, hold different views. If, if someone comes up to me and says, hey, you, you basically believe the same as this Buddhist, it's not respectful to my faith, which says different things. Now, here's the thing. Here's where we get tripped up. You can love people. It's okay to disagree. You, you can love people. And you can have serious disagreements about with a whole variety of things. And that's okay. Our culture has sold us this lie that you can only love someone if you agree with everything they believe and all the choices they make. It, it's totally false. It's garbage. 
You can love and respect someone and appreciate and listen to them and still hold significantly different views, and that's okay. Fourth, I want to introduce the phrase exclusive inclusion. I've got to be careful here uh, because uh, both of these words have been used and abused uh, in our time. And so what, here's what I want to explain by this idea. Um, Jesus is both radically exclusive and radically inclusive. Well, how, how can he be both? What are you talking about? Well, here's what I mean. Radically exclusive in the fact that he is the only way. And we need to be clear about that. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what he says. So he is the one, he is the one way. So imagine two 19-year-olds that are going to a Drake concert. They don't have tickets. They're, in the back, they're trying to get in the back. They find some open door in the back. They get in. They enjoy the concert. They came in the back door. When it comes to faith, there's no back door. There's a front door, it's a one door, and it's Jesus. Now, here's what I mean, but at the same time, radically inclusive, in that, although he is the only way, his arms are wide open to everyone who will come to him. His nail-pierced hands and bloodied arms are open to all who will come to him. This is part of the reason why Jesus is so captivating, compelling all over the world. Now, it's interesting, when you look at how different religions are spaced around the world, uh, 90%, plus 90% of Muslims... I live in an area between Southeast Asia, Middle East, and North, North Africa. 88% of Buddhists live in uh, East Asia. It's basically 9 out of 10. It's interesting how Christianity is, is very evenly distributed around the world. I just think that's interesting that God has given that much exposure to the message. Now, all these different religions, as I say, they think different things. How are we made right with God? How are we given peace and forgiveness and eternity with God? Well, they have different answers. And many of those answers is that you have to be morally good. You have to earn it. you got to be good time and time again. But what happens is all of a sudden when we realize God is perfect, holy, moral, just, all these incredibly perfect, loving, true, all these things, the more we look at ourselves, we realize we're broken, sinful people, and we can never, we've lost too much ground. We can never make it up. And so what happens, this is central to the Christian gospel, is that on the cross, Jesus gets what we deserve. See, we actually all deserve to be up there, if we're being honest. We're, that's our punishment. So when you say Jesus died for our sins, that's what we're talking about. He takes the punishment we deserve. We get what he deserves because of his goodness and faithfulness and obedience. We get everlasting blessings in the presence of God, and he gives it to us. You trust in who he is and what he has done for you. He gives it to you as a free gift. This is part of the appeal for people all over the world. No matter your socioeconomic status, how much money you have and you don't have, you come with a genuine faith to Jesus and his nail-pierced hands are wide open to you. No matter your gender, his arms are wide open to you. You come to him in genuine faith. No matter the color of your skin, you come to him in genuine faith. His arms are wide open to you. No matter how many times you've messed up, you're a, you're, a, you're a drug dealer, you're a drug addict, you're a prostitute. You, you've messed up your life time and time again. There's this carnage of wreckage beside you. You come to God in repentance and faith to Jesus, and his nail-pierced arms are wide open to you. It's part of why he is so appealing. You've been the author of the destruction and ruin of your own family. People in your own family won't forgive you. But you come to Jesus with genuine faith. And his nail-pierced hands and bloodied arms are wide open to you. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Come, all you are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Knock, and the door will be open to you. He is the only way. When you come to him, his arms are open in faith. Next, 
We speak and act with humility, not judgment. And I think we need to really focus on this because although Christ comes to us in this time of confusion with a word of clarity and compassion, um, never do we lord it over people. Never are we judging. God is the ultimate judge of someone's salvation. God is the ultimate judge of what will happen to someone at the end of their lives. None of us can know in those final moments, even someone who has been radically opposed to God, we, we, we don't know what God is doing in someone's heart in those final moments, and God is working on people. So none of us can ever say we know ultimately about someone's specific fate at the throne of God because that's God's decision and not ours. This should assume a posture of humility. Uh, David Robertson wrote a book called Engaging with Atheists, and this is kind of a book about apologetics and explaining the faith, especially with people who don't share those same faith. He, he, this is what he says. This is helpful. Um, sorry, is it next slide? No, back to? Ah, I forgot to put it in there. Anyway, this is what he says. Sorry for the confusion back there. Um, this is what he says. Your calling is not, this, this is good. Your calling is not to determine who goes to heaven. Your calling is to point the way. Your calling is not to determine who goes to heaven. Your calling is to point the way. And there's another little a statement in a book called Living Faith, which is one of the subordinate standards of this um, denomination. It says, in the spirit of humility, and this is why that logo is there, in the spirit of humility, as beggars showing other beggars where food is to be found, we point to life in Christ. I think that's good because all of us stand, none of us are here because of we're all sinners, we're all broken. None of us are moral all-stars. The more we look in the mirror, the more we see which goes against the laws and teachings of God. None of us are here because we're moral all-stars. We are beggars sharing with other beggars where food is to be found. That is the bread of life, Jesus. Next. In a confusing world, Jesus cuts through the fog with clarity and compassion. This is the final word. I think if God is good, and he is, and if God is true, and he is, and if, if reality is as he has taught us, as reality in his word, then what he teaches is actually for our benefit. So, right, this isn't, we're not just trying to like think, okay, what do we want to be true? What actually is true? How has God set up? There's a holy God, there's sin, brokenness in the world. There needs to be some sort of reconciliation mediator who is Jesus, right? So if this is how it functions, God's sharing this with us, it's actually because he loves us and cares for us and wants to be in this relationship with us. He wants us to know and to live in the way, the truth, and the life. Imagine that you're, you're a child of God, and if you are in Christ, you are a child of God, and you're there, and there's three doors, and it's foggy out. You can see that the doors are there, and behind one door is a field. It's a field, and there's a picnic, and friends, and music, and joy, snacks, all the good stuff. Behind the second door, it leads into, you can't see this, behind the second door, there is a dark, dangerous forest, and there are beasts in saliva is dripping from their teeth. The third door uh, leads over a cliff. Now, if your parent says to you, do whatever you want, is that indication of the love of the parent? Ultimately, it's going to be your choice. God gives us that. But is it loving if we say, just do whatever you want? I would say it's the opposite. 
So let me just close with this. Uh, when I was younger in my Christian journey, it, this was a big question for me. This is one of the big questions. So I don't come at this lightly, and this is something that I've wrestled with for years. And early on, when I kind of started to take my discipleship more seriously, this was one of the questions. I had a couple of questions. This is one of them. So is Jesus, is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the way? Because if he's only one legitimate option among many equally legitimate options, I'm done. Because it doesn't matter. It means the scripture isn't true. Jesus isn't true about what he says. It doesn't matter. Just forget it. I'm out. And so I did the work. So I was studying the scriptures. What do they say? But also, where do the manuscript tradition come from? Is this reliable as a historical document? How can we find that out? Also, okay, I want to learn more about Islam. So I got a Quran and I read it cover to cover. Okay, what does it teach in the Quran? Okay, what do the, what do the Buddhists hold as sacred writings? Let's, let's look at that. And I talked to other people. I even took some classes. I did the work. And the conclusion that I came to is that actually, at the end of the day, the Bible actually is the trustworthy scripture from God. And second, that Jesus is actually who he says he is. And I just wonder, maybe, maybe you need to do some digging. And maybe most of you or some of you are feeling pretty confident. Maybe some of you have questions. Maybe this has brought up other questions. I encourage you to dig because we need to know. Christ comes in the midst of confusion, offering a word of clarity and compassion for us because this is how reality is. Quick recap. We want to know what is actually true, not just what we want to be true. Jesus' words are consistent with other statements in the New Testament. Next, what it means to be honest and truly respectful of other faiths, not just what we think sounds politically correct. Uh, we talked about the phrase exclusive inclusion. We talked about how we speak and act with humility, not judgment. And sixth, in a confusing world, Jesus cuts through the fog with clarity and compassion. And so as I, I'll end with the way I began, that these are in many ways confusing times and difficult times. And um, I started with that word from N. Scott Peck, one of the characteristics of evil is its desire to confuse. Don't get me wrong, if someone disagrees with you, has a different belief, I'm not saying they're evil. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that these times in which we live are so, so confusing that we can just be unplugged and we can wander around and not have the benefit of that clarity and compassion that God offers to us in Christ. And so we need to be on guard for that. So last week I ended with a prayer by one of the Puritans, Thomas Watson. Um, some beautiful prayers and writings have been preserved by him. Uh, and here's what it was. Dear God, perfume us with holiness and make our hearts a map of heaven. And make our hearts a map of heaven. Make our hearts a map of Jesus and pointing others to him as well. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, he says. Amen. Amen.